Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. All right, welcome to the podcast. Today, we have the privilege to introduce a seasoned product professional and entrepreneur, Kareem Mayan. Thank you for coming to the show. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Kareem is hailing from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. He brings a wealth of knowledge from his time in the tech industry. He holds a degree in computer science and psychology from the prestigious McGill University, which has played an instrumental role in shaping his career in product management. Starting his journey in product teams at big name companies like ESPN Fox, Interactive Media, MySpace, so I'd love to hear more about this. He was kind of in the forefront of a lot of product innovation and growth strategies. So it's amazing to have you on the show. This experience has laid the foundation for your entrepreneurial ventures, which is now a tally number three that you've sold software companies. You've kind of identified this ability to uncover a problem, take a product from zero to one, sell this off and repeat it three times. That's amazing. So can't wait to dig in with you. There are so many questions that I have around zero to one from psychology to product in general and like how you approach this and learn from your experiences here. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Super excited to have you. Thanks, Kevin. Let's dig in. You are currently co-founder or founder at Savio, is that correct? Yeah, I have a a business partner named Ryan. We're co-founders at Savio. Awesome. Give us a little bit of background on Savio and kind of how that came to be. And we can use that as maybe a launching point to talk about some of the zero to one stuff. Yeah, sounds great. So Savio is a product management platform for SaaS companies. We help product teams use product feedback to build what we call stakeholder proof roadmaps, product roadmaps. The reason we started this was actually sort of an interesting backstory. Ryan and I were both devs turned product managers way back in the early 2000s. He worked at Microsoft. I worked at ESPN. And over the years, you know, we worked at big companies and then we started individually started companies before we met. And this is the third company. Savvy is the third company we started together. So when we sold the first company, we looked around pretty hard at the product management space because what one good heuristic I find to figure out what kind of company to start is to look at your own problems. And so in the first company, we sold software to, to gyms, to CrossFit gyms. And one problem we had was that we get all this product feedback. And when it came time to prioritize what to build next, we were uncertain because we had all this feedback, but it was you know locked up in email or in phone conversations or Google Docs or whatever. And we were uncertain about how to use all of that feedback effectively. So we looked at the space, we went out and talked to 50 product managers and to a person, the PMs were like, no, that's not a problem for me. It's not a big deal. I've got a system. I use tag in, in my Gmail inbox, you know, they all, I use Excel, I use Sheets, whatever. And so we decided to start a different company. When we sold that second company, we went back because we, we still had the problem and we had looked around and we, we didn't find any good tools. There were tools that would help you make really sexy roadmaps, but there weren't tools that helped you use the product feedback to, to build evidence-based roadmaps and give us mm-hmm. a greater degree of confidence that we were building the right things for our customers. And so we looked around you know, after we sold the second company and the problem was still out there. And so we, we decided to commit and build Savio. And so that was, we started the second set of customer, re- first set of customer research was in 2015, where we said, nah, it's not a problem. 2018, things had changed. It was a problem. We still validated with customers before we built. And then we, we launched in 2019 and it's been off to the races since then. That's amazing. You're no stranger to the space. There's so many different tools out there, right? Especially depending on the size of company and use case as well. So kind of drive unique needs within those product management functions at those industries, right? I love this approach of solving your own problem first. And this is something that you've experienced firsthand. Yeah. 
and figured out a better way to solve that personally before starting to turn this around and sell this. Tell me about that whole entire process from that first insight to actually building, prototyping. I want to hear about the MVP. Like, how did you approach it? Yeah. So when we ran the company we built after we did our first round of validation where folks said, we don't need this, was a software project management tool built on top of GitHub. And um, GitHub and Intercom, which is what we use for our support, had an integration where you could paste an Intercom link into a GitHub ticket. And when the GitHub ticket was closed, it would reopen all of the Intercom tickets. And so the, the sort of job that we were doing there was a customer would email us on, or hit us up on Intercom, say, hey, I really need, you know, the XYZ feature. We would go to the GitHub ticket for the XYZ feature, paste in the Intercom link. And then when we built the XYZ feature, closing the GitHub issue would then reopen all the Intercom tickets so we could close the loop with those customers via Intercom. And so that we're like, oh, that workflow is really nice. And that's, but that's really, that helps us with the close the loop piece, but doesn't really help us with the prioritization piece. But that sort of was the seed, you know, and when we sold that company, we're like, huh, what would happen if we could categorize, organize all the feedback, use it to prioritize, and then close the loop like we were doing before. So we went out, talked to a bunch of product managers, you know, using our networks. And then the MVP piece was we were using Intercom. We're pretty familiar with the Intercom API. We'd done some work with it before. And so the initial MVP was you OAuth Intercom, Savia would pull in all of your Intercom contacts and companies. We felt it was important when you're making prioritization decisions to know who, like which accounts and which people were actually asking for these features because not all feedback is created equal. Mm. You know, if you're focusing on your enterprise segment and you have a bunch of requests for your SMB segment, well, those are important requests, but not this quarter, right? Maybe next time. So we we'd pull mm. in that information and then you would have a way to tag a piece of intercom feedback and that would pop into Savio. You would have that sort of verbatim, you know, might be paragraphs or sentences, link that to a higher level feature request. So, you know, the feedback from somebody might be like, hey, I'm really trying to connect these five tools to your tool. Do you have a way to do that? So you'd log that feedback and you connect it to a feature request that might be something like Zapier integration, right? Sort of a shorter descriptive internal term. And so that was, that would give you a way to, to sort and rank those feature requests. And that was really the V1. So you eventually have a list of feature V1, requests, yeah. the number of people who asked for them, you could drill in each feature request and you'd see, okay, here are the five people and what they, you know, their, their verbatims. Then we layered in a bunch of sort of fancier features on top of that. But that was the V1 that we've been dogfooding since, since the beginning. Love that. Hacking together something that really makes sense for you to solve a, a critical problem that you are experiencing. That's like version one. Now tell me, did you get pre-seed funding where you funded enough to have runway from the other three you sold to actually invest in the time in this? Like, tell me about that funding process a little bit and that time to go live with an MVP or a first paying customer. So we're big believers in running what we call real software businesses. So like where you make more than you spend. And we had cash flow from previous exits to be able to self-fund for a little while, we ended up raising around from a firm called Tiny Seed in the round close in Jan of this year. They're fantastic investors, very philosophically aligned, which is like very capital efficient. But the timeline from there to first customer, I'm thinking back, Kevin, and I'm not actually even sure. I, mean, I know we launched in March of 2019, and it wasn't long after that we had like we had a, a list of folks that we'd gone out to to do validation before, and had you know folks who were excited about about using Savio. And it wasn't long after that we had, you know, our initial set of trial signups and customers, mostly through our, our networks and through yeah. sort of friends and family, I guess would be the friendliest is sort of how we think about it. Like the friendly right. initial trials and customers who will give you that great feedback and 
aren't afraid of telling you what they really need because they really have the pain, which is, you yeah. really want those. You want folks who aren't blowing smoke. You want folks who are saying like, look, this is great, but these parts suck over here. And so those those early customers are are gold. Well, how about the build time? You're both engineers, right? Which is amazing to assist in this. And I'm sure you're tag teaming some things from that initial concept or insight to actually shipping a usable MVP that you guys were able to dog food. Like, what did that timeline look like? Yeah, it, I so I've done a lot of product consulting, either leading product teams or leading product dev teams. And my rule of thumb for an MVP build is two to three devs, you know, where somebody's wearing the product hat. And that should take at most four months, but ideally two to three. That sort of gives you enough time to get sort of a rough cut at the solution that's going to solve, you know, the pain point without really, you know, spinning your tires for too long and, and overbuilding. So we started building in summer of 20, late summer of 2018. And we launched in like launched publicly in March. We, we delayed our launch a little bit. So interesting story in the business prior to Savio, we were in the GitHub marketplace. And that's where we got a lot of our signups. And so we learned that marketplaces can be a great source of traction. And so I want to say it was January. We were getting pretty close to launch, public launch. And we got wind that segment.com was launching sort of more of a self-serve developer experience. So we're going to promote folks who use their platform to build a self-serve integration using a dev platform. So we delayed launch in order to, to get on that. And you know, we built a segment integration. They were great to work with. And as part of that, they did a bunch of marketing and sent us a bunch of new customers. So that was actually quite a worthwhile endeavor to push back launch just to get some traction from a big, I mean, they were a massive partner for us. You know, we were a two-man startup at that point. So that was a, a worthwhile delay to get some marketing juice off the hop. Leveraging that for your acquisition or cold start to kick off the marketplace, or, or in this case, you're kicking off acquisition for you and setting yourself off on the best foot forward on a product launch. And then you kind of have this larger growth motion. Now that you've acquired those customers when you first market, what was your strategy to keep them engaged? It's a good question. So our approach for the first 10 customers is make them insanely happy. And so we really focused on nimbleness and lack of friction and the fact that, you know, we're the people who are on support and we're the people writing code. So the the feedback loop between a customer saying like, hey, this part of your app sucks and them getting that part fixed was very short. We really tried to, to leverage that to create a little bit of, Jason Lemkin, who writes Saster, calls it a mini brand. And obviously that's, you know, with zero to 10 customers, way too small to have a mini brand. But we did all we could, you know, on the early days to one, understand their problems and two, make them better because they were showing faith in us and we wanted to make sure that that faith and trust was well-placed. So even, you know, after the first 10 customers, we're like, okay, we've gotten to 10, now let's get to 100. And so even after the first 10, we would have referrals or like word of mouth traffic because the, it's so rare these days that you run into a company or, or pay, start paying money to a company where when you say this part, you know, is really annoying or really crappy and, and that issue is solved within a week. I mean, within a week is miraculous, yeah. but we were pushing things out the same day or next day in most cases. So, the, you know, People love that, right? It's amazing. It's, I've got a burning problem. You've got a solution. I need this problem. I need the solution made a little bit better. And, you know, my expectations are maybe it'll get done one day and it may be done the same day or next That's day. That's awesome. It blows people's minds. So that was really one of our main drivers to get more growth was just understand the customer problems, make them delighters yeah. and have them talk about us. That was sort of the going from... 10 to 100 phase. So I, th that brings up another question that's kind of interesting to me. I, 
I'm not traditionally a developer. I haven't worked at a company as one. I've learned the foundational stuff, computer science basics, and I've lightly coded here and there. I always got too bored and kind of ended up doing something more, something else more. I My brain leaned more towards design than it did the coding space. So I was kind of more in that. So a lot of front end stuff. I could do HTML, CSS, all that. What would you recommend for product managers that have a light understanding of it to really start to leverage it or use it as a tool to stand up prototypes or actually go explore these things without having the need to potentially have to source out development or in lieu of finding a partner that is amazing at this stuff, right? What would you recommend? From a clarity perspective, what's the goal? Is the goal to understand like the job the developer does? Is the goal to build your own thing one day? Is the goal? Yeah, because like- I, I mean, from others hearing your story, that's mostly a lot of yeah. uh, goals out of their long-term vision for what they want to accomplish, right? They want to run their own business. They want to create it, right? And to create it, you kind of have to have something, right? Like your product management, you're almost like a jack of all trades and master of none kind of thing. How do you kind of use that to build something, right? Or to learn the right things to go and build something. So I actually think building, being able to build can be a bit of a curse. If one was trying to start or one wanted to start a new company and had an idea, I would focus very much on the distribution angle. So how can I build this as cheaply as possible or not build it at all and get people to pay me based on not having any code. So like, as an example, the first company Ryan and I started was called Social Wad. We sold software to CrossFit gyms. We'd both been down the road before of build, 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 and nobody wanted it. This is in 2000 and probably 10 or 11. And so we d- we said to each other, you know, what? we need to get 10 commitments to pay before we write a line of code. So we built some wireframes, you know, we got some phone calls and eventually we got, I think, eight people to say they would pay. We didn't take their money in advance, which I've done before. Hey, you know, that, that the pitch there is like, hey, look, I'm going to build this product in four months. It's going to cost, you know, 150 bucks a month. I'd like you to pay me $50 to secure your spot line and you'll pay 50 bucks, you know, for the life of your usage of the product. And if I don't build it in the timeline, I said I, I would, I'm going to give you your money back, right? That's like ultimate validation because customers paying you based on like the trust in you, the story you tell and, you know, and some wireframe. We didn't go that, we didn't go that far down the road, but we got enough people for us to feel good that writing the code would actually result in, you know, the beginnings of a business on the other end. So that's honestly what I would do. There's a second piece of that, of course, is actually building the product, right? And so it's tough, right? If you don't want to learn to code, it's really tough to hire somebody who's good if you don't know how to do the job yourself. And coding is obviously very technical. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to go wrong. The direct curiosity and not knowing where to start, right? Like there's so many options. There's a lot of no code builds, which I love what you're describing, the customer funded business model so that you actually go in and validate and you don't invest that time up front and you know where to put your eggs in one basket. And maybe I'm talking a little bit more of after validation as you want to actually build something to solve but something that maybe a no code tool doesn't go and provide for you. Or as you start to scale no code usage, you have to start to pay for the fees and what have you, and that incrementally get more expensive. So you have to think about a new way to approach it. As a product manager or founder starting something from ground one, you want to kind of just learn it all. And what can you learn to actually go solve the problem? So not that it's engineering adverse, it is where to really get the most value out of your time and is it in a specific language in my experience the languages are not that they're all the same there's pros and cons but the language you you want to choose are is the one that your dev team or your lead dev is is most comfortable in assuming that it's going to sort of mm-hmm. do the job to build the product right it's not going to you're not going to be overbuilding or 
incurring a lot of pain. But I, I would rely on your technical leader to make that choice. I mean, I think the key question, if you're not technical, mm-hmm. no code is great for validation. I think eventually it's going to be creaky at the seams. If you're looking to build a real software product, I just don't think you're going to be able to do it with no code. So the question then is, okay, well, how do you find a person who's going to who's gonna help you do this? I mean, the place that I would look and the place that I've looked historically is who are the best people that I've worked with at you know companies like ESPN or MySpace or wherever else? I mean, that's honestly like you have working relationships with people, you've trusted them, you've seen them deliver, you like how they communicate, you like how they approach things. I mean, that's honestly like asking them for advice is the is the approach that I've taken that. that's been effective. Yeah. You know, working with them, going from advice to advising to moonlighting, you know, a few hours here and there to sort of full time. That's if they're not ready to, to take the plunge. That's a great thing of like asking folks that you respected and you really like you know that they know their shit and you can go and ask them a whole bunch of questions about where to focus their time if, if you're trying to solve a specific problem and then just diving in there. I love that approach. There's one other approach that I've seen to be effective, which is you find that person and they help like you that. hire. Yeah. They vet your hires for you until your first hire, until you bring on somebody who you trust. And then that person becomes, you know, the person who vets the subsequent hires Great. that you that you work with. But in general, like I'm a big fan of finding expertise in areas that I don't know. And if I didn't know how to write code, then I would go find somebody who I trusted who did know how to write code and hitch my wagon to them to help me scale the team. Okay. So now let's progress a little bit in the timeline here. Now that you've launched the thing, you said you went to market with the segment marketplace push here. How many users did you get paying users from that release roughly? Honestly, I don't even remember. It didn't get us to 10, but it got us a bunch of trials, which we learned from, and it got us a handful enough to sort of, you know, feel good about that plus our networks got us, you know, the, the 20 or 30 folks we we validated with prior got us enough to start moving forward based on, like our whole philosophy was at the beginning stages, you know, we have a vision for where we want this thing to go, but customer feedback's really going to help us take this product in the right direction. It's going to help us prioritize. So it got us enough of that feedback to, you know, to start moving forward. I think that's one critical takeaway too, is that we build this up, especially product managers growing in their career where they're attempting to solve the problem that is scalable and not the thing that's right in front of their face, right? I feel like sometimes you over-engineer, over-product, over-design these things that it's all for this future vision of where we want it. It's the Apple VR headset that we're all trying to build. But in reality, it's like, oh man, they just want to connect with somebody. Like, how do we make that happen, right? And to know that you could, I think that's a good rule of thumb is like, just start somewhere threshold of paying users that can give you validation to make a better decision round two. And it's all just progress. It's how do you learn from where you got to the 10 paying, where you want it to the 20, where you want to take it to the 50, right? Not learning through feedback, through product data, through all sorts of things to to encourage the evolution of your product over time. So I love that mindset y'all have. And it's working. You sold three companies doing this. That is amazing. I'm going to bounce around in the timeline. I want to hear more about MySpace days because this was like when I was growing up, I, you know, this was, this was prime Kevin in high school kind of enjoying, you know, I was in bands and, you know, the emo phase and MySpace, you get songs on your profile, all this sort of stuff. So it's, that was, uh, it was definitely a core element of our social growing up as, as an individual. So tell me more about how, you know, what was your experience there? Tell me anything from that. Horror stories, wonderful stories, anything. You're taking me back. It's interesting. So I was at I was at ESPN on the East Coast. I was working in Connecticut, rural Connecticut. Not a great place to be if you're like 25 years old, two hours, two and a half hours from New York, two and a half hours from Boston, not a lot going on. 
I got a call one day. So my goal was, I had this blog, reamer.com is still up. My goal was to get a job, have my blog get me a job, give me my next job. And this is sort of in the days of like Robert Scobles. This is like 2003, 2004, old school. And I got a call one day, an email one day from a recruiter and they were working for Fox. Rupert Murdoch had allocated $2 billion for acquisitions. They were going hard into the internet. And, you know, was I interested in talking? This is in LA. I was like, okay, L anywhere's got to be better than Connecticut. No disrespect intended towards Connecticutians. It's a lovely place to raise a family, but not when you're 25, 26. And so I you know, took the call and ended up working out. And I joined shortly before they bought MySpace, which was an independent business that was one of the first companies Murdoch acquired. So it was interesting. LA is a very, I don't want to say it's LA, I'll talk about Fox. Fox is a very hierarchical, media-focused company, which is very much about hits-driven businesses. And ESPN was a media company, but the dot-com team operated very independently and definitely operated more like a software company. So at MySpace, there was definitely a culture clash integrating MySpace, which was a software company, into sort of a hierarchical media company. The net net was that MySpace wanted to keep building and Fox wanted to monetize its I think, $580 million purchase price by running ad inventory. And so you could sort of see sitting back, like even at 26, 27 year old dum-dum, like it was, it was, you could sort of see the writing on the wall, how this was not going to work out that well. But there I was, I was the director of product for MySpace and the R&D, or sorry, for Fox Interactive Media, the R&D group had worked a lot on MySpace. The idea was really what kinds of things can we build to make money off of MySpace? And so there was, gifting was a thing on Facebook back in the day. We're like, oh, that's actually a good idea. And we ran the numbers. We're like, oh, gifting could actually be a huge thing. Never got off the ground, sort of beyond prototypes, but it was, it was kind of a weird place to be honest and at a weird time. Like there was a lot of thrashing mm. because MySpace wanted to hold on tight to its, you know. Tom knew what he was doing. Tom was a great community grower and tender gardener. And there were a lot of folks from Fox who really wanted to, you know, to make, make the return on their purchase, which it made sense from their perspective too. So it's actually hard to get anything done unless you were really like in the inner MySpace circle, the original team who came over. And so, you know, those folks were fun. It was very non-corporate culture compared to the Fox folks. As you might imagine, it was a young group, you know, we're in, we're actually in the 90210 zip code. So it was a, you know, sort of a, just a weird, like Beverly Hills, lots of money, media meets technology, young meets old, you know, community meets corporate kind of unusual time. I'm not sure that gave you any, any sort of, any sort of stories, Kevin, but it was, it was an unusual time. Like it was unlike any corporate environment I'd been in before or, or since. I feel like that situation, a lot of PMs find themselves in. The one quote you said that really hit home was, it was really hard to get stuff done. Like that, oh, like I totally, it totally makes sense. And that could be very frustrating, especially as a director product. You're in this team trying to excel and trying to work within all the constraints of this political mess as these two companies merge and especially the different cultures at the time and product and tech wasn't widely known as it is today of like how to operate in those functions. So I'm sure there's a lot of pain in that moment and then maybe some fun, <laughs> some fun, interesting launches or, or maybe not fun, satisfying to get things done. Tell me, you said gifting might've been one. Was there any other interesting features that you brought to life there that we would have interacted with back in the day? There's one that was sort of related, relatedly uh, involved in, which was MySpace. They launched a, like a messenger product. And I was messaging with the PM on the team and was like, hey, like I've got a couple of media contacts. Do you mind if I share this? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, go for it. 
So I shared it with a site called Paid Content, which was really just around, like it was a media-focused trade blog. And they posted about it. And I got called the next day. I got called that night from my boss, basically saying, hey, could you ask the paid content guys to take down the post? Rupert wants to announce Messenger sort of on his own cadence with his own messaging, not sort of like a back channel, random, mm. low level, effectively PM, leaking it to a blog. And I was like, sure. And so I emailed them and they didn't take it down because it was already, cat was out of the bag already. But yeah. I, I think in, in retrospect, having a couple of reading between the lines and having some conversations over the next few days with my boss, I, be, I came this close to losing, losing my job because of that leak. But the real issue was on the MySpace side was the PM who worked on the product saying, hey, that's fine, go for it. I was the messenger and I, w I would have been shot if I'd been fired. But luckily I wasn't. But yeah, that, those are sort of the two like memorable. Oh, I mean, so, but, I mean yeah. honestly, part, part of my job, part of my job, Kevin, was to do product you deal for M&A. And so like every day I'd read TechCrunch, which was a new blog at the time, yeah. look at the startups on there and say, hmm, hey boss, I think this might be interesting. It would plug into my space here or here or here because I still had over a billion dollars for acquisitions. So it was, it was just a, it's just a very unusual situation. A lot, lot sort of weird stuff going on. And the team was so small, I could keep track of every startup on TechCrunch in my head. Uh, whereas now, Crazy. you know, you see those sort of like MarTech, those MarTech images with like a thousand logos, like. It's impossible oh goodness. Today. Just yeah. Totally different world. Well, that might lead us into our next point here. I would love to pick your brain on product positioning. So in this sea of let's say this solopreneur, all product people end up turning into entrepreneurs and it makes it so easy with all these low code tools that that is this is my theory, that the world is gonna explode with startups, right? And it is kind you're kind of seeing that, like what you just mentioned. So, oh my goodness, how hard does it make it? to connect those first 10. How do you position? How do you determine what you do better than your competitors? How do you go to market and stand out in this noise? Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, it's really tough. It's an issue where we constantly face at Savio. I, I think that will always be true. I think that, honestly, I think the, the biggest win, so there's a couple things. One is if your product integrates with other tools, integrations matter mm -hmm. like a, a lot. Customers won't pick you if you don't integrate with the tools that they use. One is... You know, we like to say the devil's in the details. Everybody on their marketing site will say we do X, Y, Z. But when you actually log in and try the product and see how X, Y, Z gets done, like it may very well work for you and it may not. And that's sort of thin gruel when it comes to positioning. I actually think that the the biggest win is building a is building a brand around an idea. So at Savio, you know, we we have created a tool where uh, each item, each feature on your roadmap that you've prioritized has all of the backing information, the total MRR of everybody that asked for it, the verbatims, the customer segments that those that those requesters belong to. And so when you go into a stakeholder meeting where you're going to get buy-in for your roadmap, you know, and the head of sales says, well, I just got a phone with Acme Corp and they're our biggest customer and they want the XYZ feature. Well, you can say, here's the XYZ feature. Here's the number of people who asked for it. Here's the total opportunity revenue or active revenue associated with it. And it's not nearly as high as the ABC feature or the one, two, three feature. And it, it enables you to be, as a PM, the best informed person about customer needs in the room. And so, you know, that's, that's the idea that we're building Savio around. And it, it resonates with PMs because, you know, gosh knows, I'm sure you've been in this position, Kevin, I certainly have, where you go into the stakeholder meeting and, you know, you've hopefully socialized the roadmap with folks on a one-on-one -on -one basis before you're ideally getting there for the rubber stamp on your roadmap and you can move forward. It doesn't go that way. <laughs> you get you get steamrolled by a hippo, right? The highest paid person's opinion in the room. And, and there's nothing you can do, really. You don't have evidence to back up your decisions. 
And so, you know, zooming out the, I think the brand is the most powerful moat you have, the most powerful differentiator. If people have heard about you, you know, dozens of times and you've added value and helped them think through and do their jobs on a, on a regular basis, when they need a tool, they need the tool you're selling, you know, you're going to get a look. They might not choose you, but you're going to get a look um, because of the, you know, the, the philosophy around which you're building and the way that you talk about your product in the market. There's a really good book on this. April Dunford has written a book called Obviously Awesome, which has helped us helped us out a ton in thinking through positioning. But I think I actually think in general, product marketing is a very underappreciated function in SaaS companies because it tells you like exactly what you're asking, right? How do you position your product? How do you talk about it in the market? Who is it first best for? Where when you go to those folks, they're going to choose you over anybody else, et cetera, et cetera. What has been the most helpful resource or book, what have you? that has really unlocked that for you, that this is really effective or I've actually been able to use this tactically at Savio or in prior companies. Yeah, so it's been obviously awesome. That book is really high signal to noise ratio. And then there's also a newsletter that I read called uh, MKT1 by a woman named Emily Kramer, who was, uh, I think she was head of marketing at Asana. She now runs a, a VC firm, but her content is, it's very tactical, but grounded in strategy. So she explains like, here's the problem. Here's sort of, you know, theoretically how to think about it. And then here's like all the way down to a spreadsheet. To, you know, here's the process. And then here's a spreadsheet to manage the process that I'm talking about. And so we've used a lot of her stuff as well. There's also a guy named Pedro Cortez. Her site is Cortez.design. He helps BB SaaS companies with, with positioning and messaging. And his stuff is, is pretty good as well. Those three resources around positioning and messaging have been, have been super helpful. Awesome. I'm going to dive in here. We've also had Martina Lachenko on the show. She had the book Loved that has been a super helpful resource. There's a lot of good tactical things there as well. One resource that I found to be super helpful was Dan Olson, who's also been on the podcast with his product strategy stack. And he talks about those must-have delighted the Kano model and kind of where you over-index and where the other companies do and where you choose to place your eggs in one basket and where you choose to make a hearty decision. The other thing that was kind of useful for me is blue ocean strategy. Instead of fighting and and creating this red ocean where a whole bunch of sharks are eating each other and you're kind of off in this blue ocean where it's nice, um, it's it's differentiated, but you're still kind of playing with the same types of jobs or what have you. So those have been mine. I love this. I, I need to dive in. Thanks for sharing those. Maybe we can pivot a little bit to this planning as well, because I want to hear about, we've talked about position, we talked about zero to one. Now, Savio, as you're starting to scale, you're starting to grow your product and engineering teams, you're looking at planning, you're looking at more process for efficiency's sake, I'm assuming, but I, I could be wrong. How do you go about your product planning for the work that y'all do? Yeah, so we very much like to plan in short cycles. We still like to, you know, we're not necessarily as nimble as fix, you know, customer wants to request, fixes pushed out the same day, although sometimes it still happens. We like to keep slack in the, in the system for that. But we like to plan a very short iteration. So we plan monthly in monthly monthly cycles. So we'll typically, you know, we'll use Savio to say, okay, what are the retention is our our main goal. So let's look at what our active customers are asking for and let's look at what churn customers have asked for. Then we'll sort those by various, you know, ways, number of requests, total MRR, things like that. And we'll pick a couple of big rocks for them. Uh, and put that on the on the monthly okay. plan. Mm-hmm. And then we'll pick a handful of small rocks that might be sort of related, like, hey, if we're in this part of the system, it'll be also be easy to knock out these other smaller things. Or, hey, like these are really high leverage customer requests, important customers, a lot of value, but really easy to build. So we'll pick some sort of you know, handful of big rocks, handful of small rocks, and then, you know, then we'll be off the races. Our planning process is, is still quite simple. 
Why did y'all pick the monthly cadence versus the quarterly? Was there purpose behind that? Mostly so, so we can remain nimble, yeah. so we can switch on a dime, like what we think will be the priority. I mean, I, even at much bigger companies, I found this to be true, what we think will be the priority three months from now, you know, things change so fast. I mean, I'm hesitant to mention AI because I feel like it's everywhere, <laughs> but it's a great example, right? Yeah, like, it is. It's great. Six months ago, nine months ago, like, you know, You'd have your year plan and all of a sudden it gets tossed on its head. So we'd like to keep Slack in the system and, and be able to move quickly to, to serve our customers' needs. And, and that's why we keep the, the short planning cycle. Yeah. It, it also, Kevin, as a as sort of a side benefit, as a side benefit, it helps keep us focused. Like I, I find that short time horizons and like tightly, it forces us to keep scope tight. It forces us to keep, you know, short time horizons so we can focus on this thing. We're only focusing on it for 20 business days plus any, you know, related weekends we work on it. So it's, it really, you know, a three month, four month, six month slog can sometimes start to feel like a slog or a death march. And it's nice to, to not have work feel, feel that way. Get excited to come in on Monday morning and plug in and be like, great, I know I'm going to make a dent in this thing that's going to ship at the end of the month. I love that mindset. We do similar big rocks and, and pebbles and sand and what have you. Well, our horizons have been around a, a quarterly cycle. We leverage OKRs to manage the direction and the big rocks are kind of malleable. I do like that finite time frame. It keeps it more focused and less ambiguous. It's more intentional. I know Basecamp does the six-week cycles thing. It's very fascinated with the rework as of late, but I love to hear what's working and what's not at these given times. One question that makes me think of is with AI and with so many other innovations in the space, like there's so many different ideas. There's a million ideas we could have to go explore. And how do y'all manage that idea intake so that it is eligible for one of those big rocks within your planning cycle? We typically will experiment. So we'll have a small rock that'll be, okay, let's, let's do some prompt engineering for a couple of days and let's see what we can do based on this list of five, you know, five places that AI might have a positive impact for our customers. Let's see if we can test them quickly via prompt engineering or sort of, you know, other, other AI appropriate tactics. And if we, if we get some signal on any of them, we will refine the idea and then either bump it up in size. I mean, we'll bump it up in size if we think it'll be valuable and we, and we can, we feel like it's, it's doable. Can you give me an example of one of those small pebbles that had got signal? Walk me through that. Totally. So like one of the pain points for our customers is somebody needs to log feedback into Savio. So you, it's your customer facing team. So like your support team, your sales team, your success team, will get, a, you know, get the communication from a customer and the customer says, I really want to connect these tools to your app. You know, and, and a human will have to say, oh, this is product feedback. This should be logged in Savio. It should be linked to a Zapier integration feature request. So let me take those steps to do it. So we're like, well, this, it's, that's like what we call, what we think about is eating your broccoli. You've got to eat your broccoli so that at the end, you can have your list of feature quests with all of the related product feedback. Well, what if AI could do that? What if it can AI recognize, you know, an intercom message and, or look at an intercom message and say, oh, this actually has product feedback in it. And, oh, hey, this actually is about, you know, an integration, maybe a Zapier integration. So, you know, we, we sat down with our own intercom install. We exported all of the, you know, the last, I don't know, 200, 300 messages. We knew what we had categorized it as. So we knew what the right answer was, assuming that we're right. And then we, you know, iterated on prompts to try and figure out, okay, well, how good can we get, you know, GPT-3.5 when look at, and, and does it, does it say what, does it pick what we picked? So that's, you know, that's an example of one of the first things we did. 
and you know we're sort of going from there in terms of can we can we now make it production grade can we make it worthwhile enough so that our customers don't have to eat their broccoli they just get to eat the candy without the without the cruciferous greens now you're answering that second horizon question, which is, can we get them to eat the candy? So you had this initial idea, you're scheduling, and did you proactively, as a part of planning, put that pebble into the, the roadmap intentionally for that month? Or was this kind of like a side thing that you brought in? Side thing. We said, you know what, this is important enough. This is game changing enough that we're going to bump these pebbles yeah. and we're going to we're gonna insert this over top. I mean, we, we will refine our monthly pebbles, mm -hmm. not the big rocks, but refine it mm -hmm. weekly. You know, we'll, we meet weekly and we say, okay, here's the status of things. You know, what's upcoming? Is there anything new? And GPT and AI were worthwhile enough to bump other things from the schedule. Love it. When you said you had a signal that this solved your problem was the first signal, but did you get anything else from the broader customer set to then tell you, oh, we do need to, yes, it solves our problem, but we do need to go actually do something with the customers with this or validate it? Yes. So we know AI is a bit of a special case because not a lot of people have asked for it until recently because it was one of those faster mm. horses situations, right? Like everybody sort of knew that like, you know, conceptually this could happen maybe one day, but hey, the future's here. So what's another case? Another case might be comments. We're building comments in. So you get feedback and feature requests and, you know, people comment on the feedback. Hey, we're, you know, this may not be Zapier integration, it might be GitHub integration or, hey, can you ask the customer about this, X, Y, Z? And so comments and mentions, right? Your internal team is commenting, mentioning each other, collaborating, discussing product feedback inside of Savia. So you know, we know how many people have asked for it. We know what the cumulative MRR is. We know what the lost deal MRR is. And we'll go out to each of those people on the, in, in Savia, we have a feature quest called add comments and mentions. And you know, we'll go out to the, to the dozens of people who asked for it and say, hey, look, here's some wireframes, you know? This is how we're going to build. We're leaving these things out of V1. Are they really important to you? We're going to build these things in V1. They're going to work this way. Here's some wireframes. Let us know what you think. And so we'll have conversations if we feel like we need signal from the market. Some features we don't. We're just confident enough in it. And some we feel like we do. And we'll go out and, and get more signal and course correct before, you know, changing a wireframe is cheap. Changing code is expensive. So we'd much rather change a wireframe than code. So we'll, we'll go out and, and get that signal from the market and, you know, do what we can to have Good, a good degree of confidence that we launched this feature this way, it's going to be, it's going to make our customers happy. Tell me about product design. How do you all leverage that today? And are they driving these mocks? Is this something that you guys are just savvy enough to kind of do yourself? It's a good question, Kevin. We, neither Ryan nor I are our designer. We've typically leveraged themes. And in previous businesses, a theme was perfectly fine. We've learned one sort of rule of thumb in terms of like, UI design that I have stumbled across recently, which makes a lot of sense to me, is if your customers care about what things look like, you should care about what they look like. So UX, we were quite solid at. We have no, like we feel good about our UX capabilities. How does this thing feel? But making it look, you know, first class, world class, that's not been something that we've historically been, we focused on. So we've actually brought in a designer fairly recently who's redesigning our the UI experience of our app. We did our marketing site probably four months ago, five months ago, and we're, we're not doing it. And so we're going to integrate her into the process. We'll typically, we've done it sort of on, a, on an ad hoc basis in the past for particular features at previous companies. But in this case, we will provide wireframes and a spec. We're big fans of like writing things down. Here's how the thing's supposed to work. Here's the workflows. Here's all the, all the stuff in this Google, Google Doc. 
and then you know work with us on making this thing look good given our existing components and style sheets and tell us where we're stupid tell us where there's a better ux than you know than what's down here so we sort of like to get maximum brain power on the on the spec again when it's cheap to change before it goes to code but yeah we're uh the, the tipping point for us was we'd use the app and just be annoyed at how terrible it looked. And we realized like, hey, if we're feeling this way, people who are paying us money probably also feel this way. And we'd mm. get, we'd lose deals. We'd literally, we, we lost a couple of deals to people who said, I emphasize good design in my, in my product team and product design team. And your product does exactly what we need, but it doesn't look good. So if I were to leave this up to my product designers, we'd use a product that didn't do exactly what we need, but look better. So unfortunately, we're going to go find a third option, uh, but it's not going to be yours. And we're like, we heard, a, heard that a couple of times. We were like, gosh, this, that coupled with our own sort of product sense mm. means I think we should really invest in making this thing look good. I love that. Well, you also are just taught the looks, right? So I think design is also about experience and, and talking about like locking your first login moment. How do you walk them through realizing that uh, aha with your product? And so like a really solid product designer doesn't just help with UX which in theory they should be really good at. How do they actually walk you through that user journey and eyes for each use case or each job alongside? So it's like enhancing that product intuition with like a step experience design. So like that could be very valuable. I don't see a lot of companies taking advantage of it, which it bums me out. That, but those that are, are like loving it. Like they're seeing the value out of it, the value that it can really impact the business with. So maybe that's a another route that we can go down in some other time, but let's assign some homework for our listeners this week based on our conversation. I wrote a lot of notes here. Uh, there's so many good insights here, Karima. I so appreciate your time. Some of the things here that I really enjoy that I'm going to take away is this looking at your own problems and solving your own problems first, especially when you're going to start a venture, like starting from that foundation of solving your own needs, I think just sets you off in a better direction. So that that's one thing. I love the snippet about your MVP build and what it takes to go do like this two to three devs where someone's wearing the PM hat takes two to four months to build. That's a really solid takeaway. Another one for me is leveraging a marketplace, looking at those marketplaces that are either trying to stand up themselves, where if you get availability there, it's, it's a good acquisition channel for you, really kicks off your uh, adoption of the product, build cheap and get paid and then build brand around an idea. So one thing in particular, maybe just start with identifying marketplaces. Maybe this is a good one to say, is there any opportunities within your product that you can leverage a marketplace that is kicking off to build this integration to get this acquisition channel going? Just think about that. Kareem, what would you have for listeners? Well, I would say, I mean, I'm biased. I built a company around listening to, to product feedback, but I would say listen to your product feedback. You know, put it in a spreadsheet, make sure you're keeping track of it. Use it to, to give you directionally what, to, to give yourself directional insight on what your customers want. You know, there's Peter Drucker who said, the purpose of a business is to create a customer. And you're not going to do that if you don't understand what your customers need. And as PMs, that's that's our job, right? Is to understand the sort of scope and service area of the customer problem, the nuances and nooks and crannies. And uh, you're just not going to do that if you if you don't listen to what they're saying and, and write it down and then reflect upon it. So that would be my, my concrete takeaway. Go put that in a spreadsheet. Use a tool like Savio. Use another tool. Do what you need to do. Just make sure you're doing it. The world will be better off when software products are better and more suited to customer needs. Where can our listeners find you and how can they leverage use Savio? Try it out today. Yeah, you can try Savio at Savio.io. It's S-A-V-I-O.io. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. My name is Kareem. My LinkedIn handle is Kareem. 
And on Twitter, I'm at Kareem. I'm not so active there, but uh, I do tweet on occasion. Great. Well, thanks again, Kareem. So appreciate chatting with you. And looks like we finished up our coffee. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover. And who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.